Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. So after Abraham returned from defeating Kedorloamur and the kings <laughs> and the kings allied with him the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shava that is the king's valley then Melchizedek king of Salem brought out bread and wine he was priest of God most high and he blessed Abraham saying blessed be Abraham by God most high creator of heaven and earth And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a strap of sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the man who went with me, to Anna, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. So if you could all put your hands together for the wonderful David Stroud. Thanks, Basil. You passed the test, reading all those long words as well. Thanks so much. Hi, everybody. Really great to see you. Um, Thank you for bearing with not just one Stroud this this evening, but two Strouds, and uh, having to listen to us both. My father has taught me more about generosity than anyone else I know, so we thought uh, it was a treat for me to interview him. We thought, we hope at least, that that was a blessing for you to see that as well. My goal this this evening or afternoon, whatever it is, is to inspire you to live entirely differently from the way that anyone other than followers of Christ can ever live. And the best way in is probably by introducing you to a man that I met when I was in my early 20s. He really is the most unusual character, uh, but he proved to have a profound impact on my life. This is Steve Nicholson. Steve is a pastor uh, and church leader. Uh, Steve is shy He doesn't do small talk, he hates traveling, and on at least two occasions, at the end of his sermons in the early years of learning to preach, he left the church saying, God, I will never, ever preach again. That was dreadful. Not just dreadful for those listening, but dreadful actually for the preacher as well. And yet, looking back now from the other end of Steve's life and ministry, he's now in his early 60s, He has had a remarkable ministry. He has started one of the largest multiracial churches in Chicago, one of the biggest cities in America and the surrounding area. He has planted churches and trained people to plant churches all around the world. And I know countless pastors and their congregations who would speak so highly of him and his ministry and the way in which he has helped them and been a blessing to them. He has an unusual wisdom Uh, which it's uh, a privilege to learn from and also an unusual ability to sense what the Spirit is saying and to pray for the sick and to see them recover. When I first met him, and I got to know him very well, but when I first met him, he would say this to me. He'd say, David, he said, my life goal is this. 
He said, I want people to say of me, how on earth does Steve Nicholson do it? He's not smart enough. He's not good looking enough. And he's certainly not eloquent enough to pull off any of these things unless there really is a God in heaven and that God is working through him. Now, my challenge to us this evening is to emulate that sort of way of living. I know for myself, when I first heard Steve say that, there was something in me. As someone in my early 20s, lacking confidence in many areas, I want to live like that. And I would say I'm still deeply aware of my faults and flaws, but I still want to live like that. I want to live in such a way that people say, how on earth does David Stroud do it? He's not good looking enough, smart enough, eloquent enough, and so on, unless there really is a God in heaven. What would it be like if every man and woman in Christchurch London determined that together we would live that way, not just a few individuals? I think it could be genuinely extraordinary. One of the reasons we have set the goals that we have, and we've done it prayerfully, we trust the Lord is in it, but one of the reasons we've stretched ourselves is exactly because we want to live this way. We don't want to do something in an age of church decline that is simply predictable or possible or explainable. We want to do something that will only work if God is in it, and when we get to Love London Sunday, we want to just try and peak beyond 2020 as well and talk a little more about that, and you will see that the canvas gets broader, the horizon gets bigger at that point in time as well. But that will only be possible if we together decide we will lead lives that are inexplicable unless God really is there and God really is working through us. And he's already outlined our 2020 vision, eight services in six sites. In other words, a new service a year for the next four years at least. Greater gender and ethnic diversity at every level of Christchurch London life. Greater effectiveness, not just emphasis, but effectiveness at spiritual renewal. We want the sceptic to hear. Every sceptic that, that comes to Christchurch London, we want them to have the opportunity to hear the claims of Christ we want every seeker who comes to Christchurch London to have an opportunity to experience the love of God and we want every follower of Christ who comes to Christchurch London to have an opportunity to grow and to become more effective in the personal mission that God has given them. And of course, any time you set out on a big journey, any time you start with a challenge, you start to step out, you realise there are challenges. Andy's already mentioned the particular challenge right now, which is to increase our giving by £250,000 uh, for the next year. Now, I should say at this point in time, it's the problem with wooden pews, isn't it? Can't drop anything quietly. We, uh, when I was at school, we had, um, it was a building not dissimilar to this, but the pews faced one another. And there was one time where the headmaster stood up to speak and the pews faced each other and went up like that at angles. And there was a guy sitting at the back, and as the headmaster stood up, he dropped a ping-pong ball. So down every, it just worked perfectly, down every step, and then rolled down the centre aisle to the headmaster's feet. Anyway, that one was not in my notes, but thank you for inspiring me with that story this evening. 
if we are, so in order to live this sort of, in order to achieve our 2020 goals, we'll need to do this together. I should just say though, for those of you who are here who are visiting or here for the first time or just started coming, we don't often talk about money at Christchurch London. Probably about twice a year. Actually, if you were to read the Gospels and the amount Jesus speaks about money, he speaks about money a lot more than twice a year. But we're just aware of the sensitivities of 21st century life and churches and money, all that stuff. Uh, We feel that as acutely as you probably do as well, and therefore we seek to temper the amount of times that we speak about it. So if you're here for the first time and you're thinking, oh no, churches always talk about money, that's actually not the case. You just got lucky this evening that this evening is one of those, for us, relatively rare occasions where we get to do that. So... I want to reflect back on the story that Basil read to us a few minutes ago. The background of this story, and we're looking through Abraham's life this term, the background to this story is Abraham has got his errant nephew, Lot, out of trouble. Lot has a habit of getting into trouble. This time, he and all the inhabitants of the city he lived in, Sodom, have gone out to battle and have lost and have all been taken captive. You can imagine Abraham, now what he's gone and done. So Abraham feels an obligation to go and rescue him. He gets 350 fighting guys, rides off. They beat the uh, previous victors. And he, Abraham, comes away with all the people of Sodom, including Lot, his nephew. We, in the passage that Basil just read us, it's the next scene in the story. And the scene has three people in it. Firstly, the king of Sodom. Secondly, the king of Salem. And then the hero of the story, the protagonist, who is Abraham. And I want you, as we go along, to put your feet, if you like, in in Abraham's shoes. Sodom, (coughs) the king of Sodom, represents self-centered living. Everything about him is like, I am going to achieve, I'm going to do it myself, I'm going to do it with my own strength, I'm not going to depend on anyone else, and I'm going to take everything I can. Have you ever met someone like the king of Sodom? I mean, when he approaches Abraham, he doesn't even say, thank you, Abraham, for rescuing all my people. He just says, give them back to me. Have you ever noticed, too, how people tend to motivate you in the way that they're motivated? So if they want money, they'll use money. If they they, they want position, they use position. So here, the king of Sodom tries to motivate Abraham. He says, give me my people, but take all their possessions. I don't care about them because he's thinking that would motivate me. That's what Sodom is like. Self-achieving with his own strength, don't rely on anyone else. You could sort of hear him saying to his sons, don't you rely on anyone else. No one can be trusted in this world. Just get on by yourself. That's the king of Sodom. Now, then we have the king of Salem. Now, the king of Salem represents other-centered living. Everything about the king of Salem is different. His actions, and the first thing we find out about him is that he comes out to Abraham caring for Abraham. It's not give me my people, it's have some bread and some wine. You need basic sustenance when you fought a battle. Bread and wine. Well, that has echoes, doesn't it, of another meal. And another meal after that has an echo of Jesus with his disciples. And then the feast that we will all attend in due course Oh, we'll come back to that. He's other-centered in his actions, then he's other-centered in his words. His first words 
are about Abraham and full of God's blessing. And all his speech is about other people, either God or others. And he's an echo, he echoes Jesus. He is the king of Salem or Jerusalem, God's favoured city in the Old Testament. He brings bread and wine, echoing the body and blood shed of Jesus Christ. And he's not only king of Salem, but he's priest most high. Now, there's only one other person in Scripture who incorporates those two roles of priest and king. Do you know who it was? It was the risen Jesus Christ, who is priest, prophet, and king. And so Melchizedek reminds us of Christ. Now, what is Abraham going to do? Both of them, in a way, make advances to them. How is Abraham going to respond? Well, the first thing that Abraham makes clear is he is not going to try and get on in life through his own strength and relying just on himself. Here's how he puts it in verse 23. I will accept nothing, he says to Sodom. I will, res- I, <coughs> excuse me, I will accept nothing belonging to you. So you'll never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. It actually says earlier, I have raised my hand and said to God, it's like I've already settled this one. I'm not going to get rich by any means other than doing the right thing at the right time and trusting for the right rewards as a result of those things. So it's total thumbs down to Sodom. To Melchizedek, though, he responds entirely differently. He gives Melchizedek 10% of the spoils that he has won from the war. And it's the first recorded incident of a follower of God who gives 10%. It's the first, but it's followed by scores of of instances through the scriptures and millions of examples since then of men and women who have given 10% of their income to the work of God. (coughs) And it's that bit of the story I want to particularly focus on because I think... Money's a funny thing, isn't it? Because it gets right here at our heart. And therefore, if we're going to think, am I going to live a life? Thank you, Sarah, that is very kind of you. If I am going to live a life which is inexplicable any other way, then money's a good place to start. So we have to ask, why did Abraham give 10%? Why did he give that to Melchizedek? Well, I want to suggest four reasons. The first is worship. When you worship God, you are giving everything. One of the New Testament words for worship is, I come towards to kiss. The idea is you go down on one knee as you would to a regent and you kiss the hand. You're saying, you are great and I'm not. It's impossible to say, Jesus is Lord of everything except my bank account. You can't say, you're worthy, but you can't have my Saturdays. It doesn't make sense. I remember the second time I ever taught about giving at Christchurch London, a woman came up to me at the end and she simply said to me, she said, David, thank you so much for telling me or telling us what the Bible has to say about money. Now we can go and do it. I remember thinking, I've never forgotten, it was 10 years ago. I thought, what an extraordinary response. It's just like, just tell me. Whatever the Bible says, I'll do it. That's already decided. Oh, he says this about money. Oh, okay. And I know she became an incredibly generous individual as a result of that. 
What a soft, worshipful heart. Why did Abraham give 10%? Well, because he's a worshiper. He's already, he's already settled everything. Now it's just a question of, well, what does that mean in reality? So it was a worshiper, but he was also grateful. It was gratitude. The self-made man, the self-centered man, loves to brandish all his achievements. It's the sort of person who, if you even mention you're reading your CV, gets theirs out to show you so that you can see all their accomplishments. It's the sort of person who loves to build a website so that you, know, you can see everything that they've done. They're brandishing it around. The other orientated person loves to remind themselves that it has all come from God. I know some of you have worked extraordinarily hard to get your university position or your job or whatever it is that you're doing. You have really, you've put in hours and hours and hours and hours, but the truth is, God's given it to you. That's what Abraham understood. He'd gone to battle. I don't know how explicit I need to be about what a battle looks like. You have to get swords out. You kill people. You risk your life. But he still says, or agrees with Melchizedek, who says, God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. It wasn't Abraham because you were very skillful. This was God who did it. One of my favorite verses in the whole of scriptures is when the prophet Isaiah says, all we have done, you have accomplished. Everything I've done is actually God's. And so when we are grateful, that leads to giving to worship, leads to giving, gratitude leads to giving. And when we realize that it's all from God, we realize too that we're stewards. It's not that I hold on to most of my money and give a bit. It's that he's given it all to me. How much do you want? I give you this as, an, as, as a symbol of the fact it's all yours. You know, it is a fundamental sea change in a person's life when they decide that it is all his. It really does change everything and creates disciples as a result. And fourthly, for Abraham, it was just an expression of confidence in God's provision. It's C.S. Lewis who says, most of us struggle with generosity, not because our goal is luxurious living. We struggle with generosity because we're frightened we might not have enough one day. And so we're hesitant to give it away. Abraham doesn't know. I don't think Abraham gave because he knew he could manage with the 90%. It was more, this is a trust that I will be okay, that God will provide for me. One of the great things about interviewing my father was not just what we did on film. It's funny when you know someone really, really well but learn new things in a slightly different setting. And that's what happened when I was talking with dad one of the things, actually this I was uh, uh, f familiar with, I'll tell you about a couple of other things later on, but I, um, I pressed Dad on the fact, I said, Dad, you really started giving 10% when you were a student. Like, you never have less money than when you're a student. Some of you who are students will be profoundly grateful to know that you're likely not to have less money. I said, Dad, you gave, it, gave then... And he said, yes, he said, I gave them because I knew it was the right thing to do. And he said, I never lacked. In other words, he gave and he was confident of God's provision as a result. So is the number 10%, which often gets banded around, is that really significant or 
Can it just be, you know, is it just there? Is it significant? I want to suggest it is. It seems to have been the standard in the Old Testament. (laughs) I've had several people recently who've suggested to me that actually that's not the case. And they've several reasons. The first was this. Somebody, several people have said to me, but David, remember when people gave 10%, they were also paying their taxes. This wasn't just giving to God's work. It was giving to the nation's life. I thought that is an interesting argument for lowering all taxes to 10%, don't you think? But what they as I refreshed myself of the biblical material, I was reminded of these verses here, and you can take a screen grab if you want and look at those later. We've not got time to look at them now. But actually, there were two tithes to be, uh, that were asked for every year and one every third year. In other words, there was actually 23% that was asked for, not 10%. 23%, because they're absolutely right. It did include taxes, but nonetheless, there was a tithe to be given, 10%, to God's work. Others have said to me, yeah, yeah, but surely it was the law, you know, like don't eat pork, and we don't do that anymore. Well, there is a lot about giving 10% in the law, but it's not just the law. This example here with Abraham is before the law. And actually, when Jesus talks, he does mention tithing a couple of times. He just assumes it. He says, when you tithe. Because, of course, he would have been brought up in a household where Joseph and Mary did just that. They would have given 10%. And so he just assumed it. So it's not that it's just in the law. It actually starts before the law. It's mentioned after the law. And anyway, what Jesus says is that once you follow him, it supersedes the law and you go beyond the law in your character, your conduct, and, your, uh, and everything about your life. You may remember that last week we mentioned General uh, William Booth started the Salvation Army here in the East End and his ministry went to 120 something countries around the world and we mentioned Mother Teresa and her ministry went to 120 something countries around the world too do you think they did what they did because of obligation it's the law we ought to do it well we'll go to 120 countries then I don't think so I don't think anyone gets that motivated. No, they had their hearts so full of love for God that they just said, I give everything. In fact, that's what William Booth said. He said, when I saw the poor of East London and I saw the love of God, I gave everything. Now that's what happens when we follow Jesus. We end up giving everything. So I think 10% is symbolic, but it's symbolic of the whole lot. It seems to have been amount the Hebrews or Israelites in the Old Testament. Christians, it seemed to be assumed, implied at least in the New Testament, to be the goal at least, the guide. Interestingly too, many of those who advise on managing money today and wealth creation and all of those sorts of things, often without a specifically Christian background, will say, oh, and give 10%. You've got to be generous. And some of them have learned what the Bible teaches, which is if you hang on to it all, it has power. Money has strange power to suffocate our hearts. And actually, you don't have to have very much for it to suffocate. You can have no money or you can have a lot. It can suffocate either way. And so even those who are just advising on money management say give, and 10% is a good guide. I want to suggest four words which we should bear in mind in terms of giving. And then I just want to do a few FAQs 
As I'm looking around this room, I can see in different ones of your minds, you have different questions. Well, how about this? What about that? Don't think about that. Well, hopefully I'll anticipate some of those in a minute. But four words first. Four ways in which we should give. <coughs> the first is we should give proportionately. Proportionately simply means if you have got a low income, give a little. And if you've got a big income, give a lot. It means equal sacrifice, but different amounts. It means the amounts aren't important. It's the heart and the proportion that is significant. Second thing is sacrificial, because it's worship. Well, how much is sacrificial? Well, here's what C.S. Lewis said. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements and so on is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they're too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. Should give sacrificially. Third, we should give joyfully. Much of this city is actually focused on the pursuit of happiness. Many people are here because they can do this, that or the other which will create happiness. Did you notice what my father said right at the end of that video? I have had such great pleasure in giving. We don't tend to think of that, do we? We think of this city as being all about number one. Work, 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 fight, fight, fight. I've had great pleasure over giving. It should be a joyful thing. I would say, please don't give to Christchurch London if, it doesn't, if, if you don't have a sense of freedom, grace and joy in your heart. That's what should come. And that's the manner in which we should do it. And fourthly, according to our faith. This is important. We have different levels of faith we can trust God for provision. For some here, maybe you've never given regularly, maybe just on occasions. I want to suggest for you, it's maybe time to start regularly giving. How much you say, well, how much can you trust God for in terms of provision? For some of you, you may have been giving regularly for quite some time, but maybe during what's next, you decide, I'm going to give more. How much more? Well, what can you trust God for in terms of provision? What can you stretch for? It may be that you have given, as many in Christchurch London do, give at around the 10% mark. What should you do? Well, I think Rick Warren is a challenge to us all here. Rick Warren, pastor in the US, who recently wrote that 40 years ago, when he and his wife married, they started to give 10% of their income. At the end of the first year, they raised it to 11%, and the next year to 12%. He says that they've raised their giving annually for 40 years. He said in years when it's been hard, they've just increased it by 0.25%, quarter of a percent. When there's been plenty, they've increased it by more. Why? Why has Rick Warren done this? Next slide, please. Because I wanted to grow, my heart to grow bigger every year. I wanted to be more like Jesus. One of the biggest challenges in my experience of going through the decades of life, of going through each year, is going through each year and allowing your heart to get bigger, not smaller. 
to grow in your love for people, to grow in your love for God, to grow in your generosity, mercy, kindness, patience, faithfulness, rather than the other way around. Rick Warren said one of the things that has helped him has been to increase annually the amount that he gives. So let's see if I can anticipate some of the questions that we've got in terms of this. Question number one. David, have you forgotten that London is the most expensive city in the world? No, believe me, I have not forgotten, for I live here too. However, I think it's important that we understand what Abraham had decided here. He had decided that he was not going to be defined by what he has, but rather who he believes God to be. He wasn't going to be defined by what he has, but he was going to be defined by what he believes God to be and God to provide. And the fact that this place is so expensive gives us the opportunity to do the same. With every challenge, there's an opportunity. And the challenge of living in London is the opportunity to trust God. Another question may well be, well, look, I haven't got too much cash, but I'd like to give my time. I think that's a fabulous response. We should all give our time in one way or another. But I would say we all need to give something at least because to give something breaks the power of money in our lives. Others of us might be thinking, but I'm in debt. If you knew just how much debt I'm in, what would be our response to that? Well, our response would go something like this. Excluding mortgages and student debt, and the reason I mention those two is they both get paid off over a period of time. Excluding mortgages and student debt, my advice is that if you're in debt, the first thing to do is make a plan and get help. Talk to someone else if you need to, but make a plan to get out of debt. If the road is going to be steep and long, then my encouragement is still give, but just give a little bit. Why? Because you can be in debt and money can still have power over your life. But as you get out of debt, increase the amount gradually and incrementally as you make progress. That would be my suggestion. Next question. Net or gross? Should I give 10% of my money before tax or after tax? Well, in the Old Testament, they took their gross and gave out of that both taxes and giving to God's work. God has actually given us everything, not just what we get post-tax. I want to suggest that the biblical example and a good habit is to give gross. That has certainly been my habit, and I know it reflects many others in terms of our convictions, uh, in terms of how we do that. Next question and final question, should you give all of your giving to the local church? Well, my suggestion is start with the local church. Why? Because the local church is what God loves best. We're told that he is coming back to receive the church as his bride. It's the centerpiece of his affections and his intentions to bless the world. So I think it's the best place to start. I want to suggest there is no other organization on earth that works for the cultural, social and spiritual renewal of its community. The local church does it all in a way that nobody else does. So start with the local church. For many, they make it their habit to aim for 10% for the local church and then as they're able to, over and beyond, to give to other things as well. I think that is something of a good model. 
So what does this mean in practical terms? Well, we're asking everyone whether they would prayerfully review their giving. And for some of you, you'll instinctively know how you want to respond. Others of you need to think. You might need to you know, have a look, work things out a little bit. But we're asking that everyone would review their giving no later than Love London Sunday and respond as a result. How do we respond? Well, the first way is that we can pick up one of these What's Next leaflets. And they're at the back. And they've got different pictures on. Uh, this happens to be Abba from the Central Service, uh, but most of these have got uh, pictures on from people in the East Service, so it makes it particularly easy. Basil's even got one in his hand. And um, if you open that up, there is the plan on the, on the one side. I'm sorry, the vision on the one side. What are we wanting to do? Then there's the plan. How are we going to do it on the other? And then on the back, there's a short form to fill in. And if you want to fill this in, you can fill this in this evening. There is a, a box, a locked box at the back, and you can just pop this in. And as Andy said, it means that nobody else, apart from our finance people who are extremely discreet, uh, will know exactly how much you've given. But you can do it that way, or you can go online. I'd really encourage you, go to whatsnext.christchurchlondon.org. If you were not here last week and haven't seen the video, we have an absolutely fab video. Two and a half minutes expresses all of our 2020 vision. I would really encourage you to look at it. I know someone who's seen it three or four times since we showed it last week, and they were like, oh, you didn't show it this week. It really is great. Have a look. And... Uh, that will help sum things up. And then practically, here's the sort of thing we're praying for. Maybe we could have the next slide, please. Here's the sort of thing we're praying for. 150 people to give £10 a month. 65, 20, and 70, 30, and so on. Now, the first thing that strikes me when I see this is, man, we are looking for a lot of people to get involved in this. We're looking for everyone who considers Christ Church London to be their church, to get involved with this. The second thing is that my experience, at least, as I looked at that intuitively, I knew exactly where I fitted on that list. And I suspect many of you do as well. And I looked at it, I thought, that's where I fit, that's my commitment, but I will stay open to the Holy Spirit and see whether he speaks to me any further over the next few weeks about increasing that. But I think for a lot of you, you'll look at that and you'll just go... I know where I fit. I know what my responsibility is in all of this. I want to conclude uh, by just telling a very short story of somebody else who deeply impacted me in my 20s. And her name is Jackie Pullinger. She actually uh, lived, before she uh, went on her adventure, she lived not far from here at, uh, and she went to church, I think, at Christ Church Spitfields. At 19, she felt that the Spirit was telling her that she should go somewhere else in the world in order to share the love of God. So she wrote to all the mission agencies that she knew of and they all said, no, 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 you can't possibly be right because we don't take people till they're 25. Oh, she thought. So she went to speak to her vicar and her vicar gave her the most uncommon piece of advice. He said, why don't you buy a ticket on a boat that stops in as many ports as possible around the world and you'll know when to get off. And Jackie was deeply suspicious of this advice because she thought that this was all meant to be sacrifice and hard work. And this all sounded rather exciting. But anyway, uh, not deterred, in the end by the excitement level, she got on a boat and she ended up in Hong Kong and living in the worst slum in Hong Kong. That was now 40 years ago. 
If Jackie was standing here tonight preaching rather than me, I would doubt that she would get through a 30-minute sermon without saying these words at some point in time. She would say, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And if you want to get more in your life, then give away what you've got. If I've heard her say it once, I've heard her say it a hundred times. And that is how she's lived her life. The result now, 40 years later, is there are six churches across Hong Kong that have come out of her ministry. And in an environment where it's not always easy to meet publicly to express your faith, there are other churches in parks, offices, sitting rooms and disused factory buildings. They also provide homes for up to 300 people who are facing all kinds of addiction problems. They work with troubled families and daily teams are going out to visit the poor, the elderly, addicts, street sleepers and refugees. But I think if you'd met Jackie Pullinger at 19 and a half, you would have said, don't bother. It's not a good idea that you go. You'll get eaten up. And how wrong I or you would have been if we'd said that. Because this is a woman who has proved the reality of the inexplicable life. Of someone who had a dream that was so much bigger than they could do, but it was a dream from God. And people look at Jackie and she's won all sorts of awards. And of course the government and all the authorities ignored her for years. She was just that pesky woman who kept going with these triad gangsters to court and helping them get off heroin. But now she's fated as happens, and people come from all over the world to see her. But when you look, you say, you're not good looking enough, and you're not smart enough, and you're not eloquent enough to have done this, unless there's a God in heaven. And that's my challenge to us, and maybe the band could come back, please. That's my challenge to us this evening. For many of us, I suspect that the challenge does reside around the question of money, just because it's always a big one for all of us, but maybe it's something else to you. My question is this. In what way is the Spirit prompting you to take the next steps in order that you too and that we together would lead a life where people say there's only one way of explaining that. There must be a God in heaven. Let's stand together, shall we? Let's just pray. Let's bow our heads and just... Father, I want to ask that you would help us to maintain soft hearts, that we would hear what you say and just say, we do whatever you want. I want to pray that for my brothers and sisters here as I pray it for myself. I pray, Lord, we'd have soft hearts. And I pray, Father, that you would teach us to walk with you in such a way that our lives would be inexplicable except for the fact that God is in it is in our lives. Bless us, we pray. Lead us and guide us over these few weeks. Show each of us what our personal and individual response ought to be. And may it all result in the building of your church, the glorifying of your son, and the healing of our land. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit christchurchlondon.org.